today's scripture is Luke 14, 1 and 7 through 14. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat at the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host will invi- host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a a banquet, invite the poor the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Pastor John would give today's sermon. (laughs) Would you you like a better introduction? No, I think that's fine. That's why I got up right away. Yes. (laughs) Keep getting introduced up here, and sometimes it's very awkward um, because I have no idea what the MCs are going to say about us pastors, so it's better that I say it. (laughs) All right, welcome to New Mercy Hackensack here at 1030. Um, I am one of, uh, uh, I'm one of your pastors serving here. Name is John, and I have the privilege to give you the word today. And uh, today was uh, it's interesting Sunday because it's uh, not only Thanksgiving Sunday, but it's also the first Sunday in which our brothers and sisters at Edgewater have physically moved location to Palisades Park. I know Pastor Wan J. Hudson made the announcement. Um, but they really tried hard to stay in that region, and they really looked for about months in advance, knowing that this may come. But when we got the six weeks notice, they really went hard at it, and they did the whole presentation. They went door to door. They met the Board of Ed. They met all the government officials there in Edgewater and beyond, and they just no parking space, no, uh, you know, big enough place for our congregation to meet there. So they searched, panicked, but God provided, gave us three options, and uh, they landed at Palisades Park. So I was actually there today, and it was my first worship with them. It was their first worship there, and really just felt um, rejuvenated because I can just see now the people who are, who are in the fringes who are now getting much more involved because uh, now it's a new location. They have uh, a new... Uh, just culture that they're trying to develop over there. So uh, we hope that you are continually praying for them, for our brothers and sisters there, for their growth in spirit, but also in numbers and just all that they will, uh, uh, how they will experience God over there. So, uh, yeah, so they have moved to Palisades Park. Therefore, my drive over here was actually shorter. (laughs) Um, But um, I am looking forward to the day where, we don't have to do the drive either. <laughs> so, um, here at New Mercy, I know it's Thanksgiving Sunday, but um, along with the Thanksgiving message of sorts, we are in a sermon series called Relationally Challenged. You know, we are all challenged to some degree in all our relationships. 
those that are close or the, those that are distant. We have uh, things that we lack in those relationships, areas in which we want to grow and change in those relationships. So we decided, you know what, let's look at what we uh, suffer with. What, what do we have difficulties in our relationships? And also, how does a gospel uh, message speak into that problem? And today, I want to speak about the problem of self-pride. And need for more humility. Um, as Jesus says that humility brings honor. And in Proverbs uh, 11.2, it says, When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. And I really truly hold to that. Humble, being humble or humility is wisdom that we all could use much more of as we build our relationships. So let us pray. Invite the Spirit to come join us. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your spirit is the one we worship. Your spirit is the one who moves. And your spirit is the one that transforms and restores our relationship. So we invite you here while welcoming arms, knowing that you will be pleased by our worship. May you be glorified. May you be pleased. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So oftentimes pastors gather together and we laugh and we talk about the next theme or the topic that we want to preach about. And this happens once in a while where we ourselves get so personally convicted about the message. Not because we wrote an amazing sermon, but because the topic in which we have to preach about or we chose to preach about speaks volumes in our personal lives. And that was such the case with me. For the past few weeks I've been reading I've been meditating, I've been praying on this theme called humility, and obviously, God keeps poking at me. You prideful. <laughs> You're going to preach about humility, you know? And so, yesterday, as I was kind of wrapping up the sermon, I was just like, ah, fine. I came down from upstairs. My wife, Hannah, was downstairs doing yoga. She doesn't like to be bothered when she does yoga, <laughs> I can bother her any other time other than when she does yoga. It's kind of her, you know, alone time. But I had to pause her because I said, Annie, that's my terms of endearment for her. <laughs> Just in case you're like, what is that? <laughs> Hannah, Hanny, you know, it makes sense. Um, Hanny, can you pause <laughs> yoga for a second? And there's like, why? What happened? <laughs> this never happens. I said, you know what? I just felt convicted to say I'm sorry. She's like, what? Where is this coming from? It's coming from left field, right? It's out of context. Uh, because there's really no arguments that happened. There wasn't a fight. Uh-uh. So she, she was kind of dumbfounded. And I said to her, um, you know, I'm so sorry because lately I feel like I've been so prideful. I feel like I'm arguing for the sake of arguing, and, and I'm missing the point, and I keep thinking that I'm better than you, and, and it's really just eating me inside as I'm reading the scripture and about to preach a sermon on humility and self-pride. I felt like I needed to tell you, I'm sorry, and she quickly gave me a hug, and she said, you know, John, I think you're awesome. I think you're a humble man, and, you know, you're an amazing husband. I'm so happy I married you. And, you know, immediately I thought to myself, you know, she just wants to go back to yoga. Um, <laughs> so, but then I, saw, I thought to myself, this all happens within seconds, right? I'm thinking to myself, you know what? I am kind of humble. 
I'm a pretty good husband. I think she's a wise woman for telling me that. And then I'm moving back upstairs. I take the first step and my, you know, going up the steps. I'm thinking, I am a humble husband. I should be proud of myself. And then I'm halfway up the steps and I'm thinking, you know what? I am awesome. Why did I even apologize? Right? I get to the top of the steps. I'm thinking, patting myself on the back. I was just like, you know what? She's perfectly right. <laughs> you know, I, I am always right. You know, I am better than her. And hence, what do I learn? That pride is a vicious circle that only takes a second, second to teach you that, man, this, how far I've come, that at the end of the day, it only takes a second from, I'm so sorry, honey, because I need to be more humble, to, I am awesome, (laughs) And I'm not talking about self-confidence. I'm talking about that fine line where we're confident and we crossed it and we realize, man, it's all about me. I really do think I'm better than you. Symptoms of self-pride are many. Uh, those who have pride issues are very quickly, um, tendency, uh, have tendency to quickly defend themselves. They don't like to listen to others. They have a harsh spirit. They look constantly for others' faults because I don't want to blame myself, so I want to blame you, right? They are, uh, they, they are used to being desperate for attention, and they, they are used to neglecting others, those who are especially not of help to me. But at the core of all those symptoms, one thing remains, which is that at the center core of self-pride, We have this message that we tell ourselves, I am better than you. As one of my favorite antagonists, uh, White Goodman, would say in Dodgeball, here at Global Gym, we are better than you, and we know it. (laughs) That's self-pride. I know I'm better. I act like I'm not, but deep down inside, when I go back into my car and drive away from you, I think, oh, I'm better than you. I know it. This is an issue of all human beings. Throughout history, this is not a new problem. Throughout history, human beings dealt with this problem of self-pride. We human beings are obsessed with creating classes and ranks and acting accordingly. Because I want to know when I enter that room, where do I stand? Am I 1? Am I 5? Am I 20? Am I 30? And then once I rank myself, once I can figure out my class then I can treat you accordingly and I can demand and expect certain things from you as well. That's how we are. You can call it human nature. It's a problem in which all human beings over history have dealt with, even today. There's nothing wrong with having power, money, and fame. But we cannot deny the fact that we are biased towards those who have more and biased against those who have less. Therefore, we gravitate towards who are ranked higher than us in order to receive something. And some of us are gravitated towards those who have less so that I can feel prideful and I can feel like I am somebody. So we create clear systems of classes and ranks that can be seen and practiced in our daily lives. Nothing's new. For example, during the days of the Wild West, that was a way to distinguish one's hierarchy in society when writing 
the stagecoach, their means, uh, main means of transportation. These stagecoach, during the times of the Wild West, can only fit about six people. And yet, there were three classes of tickets that you can buy. Crazy. Six people. But there's first class, there was a second class, and there was a third class. Fascinating. First class, folks, if you bought that ticket, you bought premium tickets. You paid the most. Therefore, you can stay in the stagecoach, and when the stagecoach gets into trouble, like it's stuck in the mud or it has to go up the hill and it's stuck, you don't have to do a thing. You can just stay in the stagecoach. In fact, they require you to stay in the stagecoach and do nothing. But if you bought the second-class tickets, then when the stagecoach is stuck or is in trouble, you had to get out. But you can just walk alongside the stagecoach until the problem is resolved. But if you bought the third-class stagecoach tickets, then you are required, right, because you paid the lease. You are required when the stagecoach is stuck in the mud for you to get out along with the driver, get in the mud, and push the stagecoach out. When it couldn't go up the hill, you need to get out along with the driver and push from the back, pull from the front. It's what you call sweat equity. You didn't pay with money, so you pay with sweat equity if we're in trouble. First class, second class, third class. And you think to yourself, wow, our society hasn't changed much since then. If you think deeply about the way we function, there's always classes and ranks. And look, I'm not saying we need to get rid of all classes and ranks. I don't even know if that's possible. But what Jesus teaches us today is that to him, his first class, in his perspective, the first class ticket means something very different. To him... The idea of the first, second, third, the first and the last flips upside down. To Jesus. To Jesus. First class meant something radically different. To Jesus, humility has utmost value. To Jesus, cheap tickets, cheap seats meant more. Humility. In Luke 14, in today's gospel, this is what Jesus teaches his followers, the host, the critics, and his disciples. Once again, over a dining table. You know, Jesus does a lot of things over a dining table. And dining table is where serious business is taken care of. It's not just, let's have a banquet, have fun. Anytime you have a fellowship table, a dining table in which groups of people gather and they eat together, break bread together, and they drink together. Something is going on and something serious. That Fred Craddock says this, nothing is more serious than a dining table in the gospel, Luke. The Eucharist and revelations of the risen Jesus Christ occur over a dining table. Jesus promises the Holy Spirit while eating together. Jews and Gentiles reflect the nature of the church and debate over and build a church over a dining table. The table is taken so seriously that Jesus gets into trouble because he's constantly changing his eating buddies. It becomes so much of a problem that he's inviting tax collectors, those who are lame, those who are blind, those who are poor, those who are in the margins who cannot sit at that banquet. By Jesus inviting them 
to that table, people begin to hate him. To us, a dining table, having a meal together, seems like a mundane business. But during this time, in the gospel, when you see the dining table and you see Jesus coming in, and everything flips upside down. Jesus begins, therefore, teaching guests about the table manners. Interesting. He's invited to this dining table by a prominent Pharisee, someone who's very well known, who's politically connected, who's famous, who has money and power in the town, invites Jesus over. So Jesus is the guest, the, the honored guest. And during this time, when you enter somebody's home, especially a banquet hall, a big uh, uh, section of the home where everybody would gather to eat, generally, there will be a table that's about U-shaped. And at the center, there will be the host. And right next to the host, there will be the honored guest. And the, the banquet hall, the, the meals, the fellowship table was so serious that depending on where you sat on that table or other places, it shows you your rank. Where in society you stand. How people are supposed to treat you and speak to you. In fact, it determines what food you get, what drinks you get, how much you get, what kind of conversation you will have, what kind of nods and bows that you will receive. So as the host, the prominent Pharisee invites Jesus to this banquet. Jesus is walking to sit next to the host. And I imagine Jesus looking around and he pauses before he sits. And what does he observe? He observes in Luke 14, 7 right away that there are guests who have come and they're fighting over where to sit. I deserve that seat because I'm more important than you. No, I, I should sit there because I'm better than you. And while Jesus observes these guests fighting, he turns to them and says, Hey, guys, guys, calm down. Let me tell you a story. A parable. A short story with the punch. But this parable is very interesting because it's pretty self-explanatory. You know, oftentimes when Jesus pauses the crowd and says, Wait, I have a story to tell you. It's kind of crazy because it's way out of context. It doesn't make any sense sometimes. You're like trying to read it between the lines and like, what the heck are you talking about, you crazy man? But this time in Luke 14, you just read it? Kind of makes sense. It's pretty straightforward. He says to the guests, hey, you're fighting over the seats of honor? When you're invited to the wedding banquet, don't take the expensive honor guest seats. Rather, take the cheap seats. Take the back corner. Humble yourself. Let others go before you. Because one day you will sit next to the host thinking that you are the honored guest. And when a guest comes that is more prominent than you, more popular, more famous, more powerful, more rich, then the host can say, hey, you, you need to remove yourself and go back. And it was just accept the custom of the day. So rather than being humiliated that way, Jesus tells the guests, hey, take the cheap seats. And when the guest comes, a host comes and says, hey, why are you sitting here? Please come up. That is a better scenario 
a heart, an attitude, a life of humility, then you going up there, strutting in there, is like, I deserve that seat. Get up. And then Jesus turns. And then he faces the host, the prominent Pharisee. How rude what he's about to say. There's a man who threw a, a banquet, a huge dinner for Jesus and many who followed him. And yet he turns to the host and he starts lecturing the host as well and tells another parable, which is pretty straightforward. says, hey, host, when you invite people, don't invite your friends, don't invite your family, don't invite your relatives, don't invite those who have power, money, and fame because you invite them knowing deep down inside that you will receive something back in return. Rather, go and invite those who are in the margins, those who are poor, those who are lame, those who are sick outside because you know when you invite them, you have nothing to receive in return from them. How does that make any sense, Jesus? Why would I invite people that I dislike? Why would I invite people who are dirty, who are filthy, who are sick, who are alone, who are outcasts of this society? Why would I invite people ultimately whom I'm better than? Because by inviting them and sitting with them, this serious business of fellowship table, I'm announcing to the world that I am Low, just like them. Why would I do that? See, that's a real fear in our lives, isn't it? It's a real fear of mine. And the fear is this. That once I take the cheap seats, as Jesus says, that maybe one day I'll be stuck there. That all I'll experience is cheap seats. So we go after hunger for and thirst for those who have more and run away from those who have less. And yet, to Jesus, first class flips. Last will be first. Humility. Humility wins over this fear that we may be stuck in the cheap seats for the rest of our lives. Humility reminds us that your worth and your values is in God's hands, God's eyes, not ours, not others. Humility teaches us ultimately that everything I have, everything that I've earned, everything that I enjoy comes from the Lord. I didn't earn it. It wasn't because I had an amazing job. It's not because I had an amazing skill set. It's not because I am so amazing that people love me. But all those things are true perhaps because God provided them. Therefore, I come before humbly before the Lord and say, God, thank you. How rightly is this message timely on this Sunday of Thanksgiving? You know, one of the main signs of somebody who is humble, they say, is one who constantly knows how to give thanks for small to big things. Uh, you wake up, the first thing in your mind is, God, thank you for the life you've given me. Let me live a thankful life today. 
one of the other signs of those who are humble, who live in this posture of humility, is ones who forgive others more easily than others. And research also shows those who are humble ask, more likely to ask for forgiveness when they do wrong. We're talking about relationships that are challenged. Imagine what a relationship would change, how it would change, how it would transform if I approach those relationships, whether it's my spouse, with my kids, my friends, my family, with the thankful heart, with the forgiving heart, to receive forgiveness, with the humble heart, to say, I am not better than you. God loves me, sees me the same. As he does with you. We worship. A God. Who is so humble. That even on the last night. Before he was crucified. The last meal he has with his disciples. He gathered. The twelve. And while he steps out. The twelve begins to argue. They start fighting amongst themselves. Guess what? When Jesus. Where's that crown? And he becomes the king as we expect to and defeat the Roman Empire. When he sits on that throne, I will be his right hand man. No, I don't think so. Do you know what I did yesterday? I helped feed the 5,000. I'm the one that's running around getting food. I'm the one that's praying. I'm the one that's fasting. I'm the one that's more obedient. They're fighting amongst themselves to sit next to the ultimate host. Jesus Christ. But for them, it is about power. It's about rank. It's about class. It's about who they are and what they deserve because they think they're so much better than each other. And yet, how does Jesus respond in that last meal? He breaks bread. He drinks. He reminds the disciples once again why he came on earth. When he did not need to. And then he says. Bring in the water. He bends down. On his knees. And one by one. He washes their feet. Posture of humility. When you know. That you can will it. Whichever way you want. You know that you have power. You know that you have authority in this life. You know that you have money. You know that you have fame. And yet Jesus says, for those of you who are privileged, take the cheap seat. And those of you who want to host, remember, invite those who are outside, who will never have a chance to invite it into your home to have that warm meal posture of humility will go a long way in redefining, reforming, and changing, transforming our relationships. Imagine next time you fought with your spouse. You pause for a second. I know this is very difficult. You know, much easier to preach, huh? You pause for a second. You say, God, humble me. Let me come into this conversation with a posture of humility. Not to think that I'm better than her or better than him, but just to listen and empathize. Next time you fight with your friends, 
about the stupidest little thing that you can just look up on Google and say, I'm right. Just listen to them for, for a second. Why are they arguing with you so hard? Why is it so important for this person to sympathize and empathize? If we do that, if we truly approach our relationships with this posture of humility, I wonder how our relationship will change. Humility is a wise posture in which we should approach all of our relationships. You know, Mother Teresa in 1979, she was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. Quote, for work undertaken in the struggle to overcome poverty and distress, which also constitutes a threat to peace. And for winning that award, usually there's a, a huge banquet ceremony. And the budget for that banquet is $192,000 for that one-night banquet. So Mother Teresa refused. Of course. Right? But the government officials, the, the politicians of India were so proud that one of their own won this award that they decided to throw a banquet. And they invited Mother Teresa. And she couldn't refuse, so she decided to go. And it was time for her to come up to stage and take the microphone and give a speech. She really said nothing. She said these two words, follow me. She dropped the microphone. She walked towards the banquet hall, the buffet line. She got a plate. She filled it with food. And she started walking outside of the banquet hall. Those who knew her knew what was happening. Therefore, they followed. Those who did not know followed as well because they didn't want to be embarrassed. Only two, three blocks away from that banquet hall were the needy, the poor, the hungry, the homeless. Mother Teresa gave the food to them as hundreds followed after. Posture of humility. Now you say to yourself, come on. Mother Teresa again, Jesus Christ, come on, like the bar is way up there. I'm just going to be satisfied with my life the way I live now. Look, in the freedom, God gives us power to change and change things of our lives, small and big. So here's very three simple ways that we can perhaps work on our humility. One. Think of yourself less often. Think of yourself less often. C.S. Lewis once said, true humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. It's not being like, I'm going to kill my self-confidence and I'm going to be a doormat and be abused. That's not, that's not self-humility, right? That's self-hatred. That's masochism, right? That's false humility, What Christ is talking here about is that how often do we think about ourselves? I mean, how often do we pray about ourselves, the things that we need, things that we want? I do it all the time. Every night I pray with my kids, and I feel like almost like I I program them in the wrong direction because every night prayer goes, thank you, God, for X, Y, Z, but then it quickly turns into I want this, I need this. But I'm thinking... Oh, that's so premature. What's wrong with them? And then I think to myself, that's how I pray. (laughs) Right? I say, God, I need this. 
I need, I need more money. I need more security. I need these types of people in my life. I need these toys in my life. I need these experiences. It's more about more and more consuming for myself. Think of yourself less. I challenge you this, church. Go pray. Next time you pray, try not to think about yourself at all. It's not possible. But what I'm saying there is don't ask God for things next time you pray and see what happens, which leads to my next point. Think of yourself less often. Two, think of others more often. And make that prayer into praying about others. Praying about our missionaries who are out there serving. Praying those who are poor, who are needy, that you walk by every day. Praying for those who are struggling in their life. Pray for those who are sick and who need healing. Pray. If you don't know those people, you're not living life. Go out and find out. Ask people, what can I pray for you? Pray for others more often. And third, pray for God the most often. When you're stuck and you keep thinking about yourself and it's very difficult even to pray for other folks, sit there and ask God, the Holy Spirit, may you come fill my heart, fill my mind, fill my life, fill my body and my soul, all of who I am, so that only person that is important in my life will be you, God. That I may live according to your will. That I may live according to your perspective. That I may redefine what it means to be first, second, and third. Because I love you. Think of God the most often. Come up with a short prayer. Come up with the habit of constantly thinking about our Lord God. Without necessarily thinking about what I can get in return. The truth is... You will either be humble before God or you will be humbled by God. That's only two ways to live. You can come humbly before the Lord. For God who humbled himself, that he died on the cross for our sins that he did not commit and said, still, I will resurrect and love you and invite you to this banquet table when we don't deserve it. That God, that King, that Messiah, You can either come humbly before him and say, God, my life is yours. Thank you for inviting me to your banquet hall. Or you can fight him, be prideful, try to gain all that you can with all that you are, thinking that this is all you, and then one day be humbled by God. Let us pray. I know this is an area that most of us struggle with. And the irony of the self-pride problem is that people who have self-pride issues don't think they have this issue. But let us come humbly before the Lord. And let's just take a few minutes to pray. Let's think of us less. Think of more of others. Think most of our Lord who crucified And sacrifice his life for us. True life of humility. May the spirit move your heart and your mind this morning. And let us just pray in whichever way the spirit is moving you and guiding you. Let us pray.